We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God our Creator, not our government. I believe that Scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. The fact is, right now we have curtailment of investigative steps uh, to protect the Bidens. Why prosecutors prohibit investigators from from referencing, uh, you know, to dad and the big guy in witness interviews. Anytime any questioning goes down that line, the DOJ has been telling people, nope, stop. You say this is nothing but ongoing investigations. The fact that we had 84,000, whatever the number is, of all of the the, uh, email correspondence with the pseudonyms, and we've gotten 14 of them, on its face, this body deserves to get more information. I think this is very clear. The average American watching this would agree. That was Representative Chip Roy in Congress uh, yesterday as the House has now voted to formalize its impeachment inquiry into President Biden on Wednesday, taking a critical step, according to Fox News, that GOP leaders have argued is necessary to force the White House into complying with their investigation. So that measure passed 221 to 212, which is exactly along party lines. Every Republican voted in favor of it and all the president. Democrats voted against it. So a light cheering could be heard on the GOP side of the chamber after the measure passed with pin drop silence on the Democrat side. This also comes in the wake of Hunter Biden as a no-show for his deposition. So after arriving on the Senate side of Capitol Hill, according to Town Hall, Hunter Biden made a statement to the media and refused to go over to the House side for the deposition, blowing off a congressional subpoena issued by the House Oversight Committee. The House Sergeant at Arms uh, has no jurisdiction on the Senate side where Hunter made his statement, so that clearly seemed coordinated. After his remarks, he quickly got into a car, uh, the car that he arrived in and left. Previously, Biden's attorneys demanded their client testify only in a public hearing, despite closed-door depositions being a routine first step in investigations. Republicans agreed to a public hearing after the closed-door deposition. So this is what uh, Hunter Biden had to say initially. His entire press statement was about five minutes. We're not going to waste our time this morning listening to all of it. But this is uh, the initial part of his statement. This is cut four. Good morning. I'm here today to answer at a public hearing any legitimate questions Chairman Comer and the House Oversight Committee may have for me. I'm here today to make sure that the House Committee's illegitimate investigations of my family do not proceed on distortions, manipulated evidence, and lies. 
Well, then go sit in the chair and actually talk about it. And uh, Hunter Biden clearly did not. And so now the House was initially considering contempt of Congress. And uh, now reports have suggested they have backed off of that. But if you recall, the January 6th committee and the uh, the former uh, House majority did pursue contempt of Congress for Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro when they refused to answer subpoenas of the January 6th committee. And both of those men were actually found guilty at trial, and uh, they're pending some appeals now. And so uh, why is Hunter Biden any different? And so for the conservatives that are arguing that Hunter Biden should be held in contempt of Congress, I hope that they also are not doing that just solely on party lines um, or not out of retribution for Bannon and Navarro. If there is a legitimate subpoena, whether it's from Congress, a court of law, or any government entity, then the individual subpoena is obligated to come and show up. You can sit in the chair. You can even exercise and invoke your constitutionally protected Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, but you at least need to show up. So um, unless and until a judge says otherwise, which of course um, some people have contested subpoenas, that is an obligation under law. And so I myself have uh, responded to to many different government subpoenas in uh, the wake of my uh, former tenure with President Trump and, you know, sat in the chair, exercised my uh, constitutionally protected Fifth Amendment right, and uh, and that's why contempt of Congress uh, wasn't <laughs> wasn't pursued against me. And so um, I said at the time that uh, Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro should have done likewise if they wanted to make some of those uh, objections, like executive privilege and so forth, and you can make that to a court. But if a court says no, then you have to show up. Or if a court hasn't said otherwise, and the subpoena is presumed to be legitimate, that's what you are, uh, that's what you're risking is that contempt of Congress. And so I do think that the House majority uh, should go after Hunter Biden for contempt of Congress, because it was obvious he was there, he showed up, he was on the Senate side, where I'm sure his attorneys and he knew that the sergeant at arms of the House did not have jurisdiction. And then he left rather than going in and facing that subpoena. So uh, the House now, though, has a former of uh, has formalized the impeachment inquiry, uh, which, as we know, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker, had uh, authorized that initial impeachment inquiry. But uh, there were some pushback from uh, Democrat lawmakers saying that it had to be a formal vote with the House. So I think this was a good step to actually authorize that. And Speaker Mike Johnson released uh, this kind of impeachment inquiry montage on social media yesterday. This is cut two. Can you explain to the Americans, uh, to Americans at this impeachment inquiry, why you interacted with so many of your son and brother's foreign business associates? I'm not going to comment that I did not. And it's just a bunch of lies. You didn't interact with many of their business associates? I did not. They're lies. One of Hunter Biden's former business partners testified before the House Oversight Committee Monday in a closed-door meeting. Archer testified that Hunter Biden put his father, who was vice president at the time, on speakerphone multiple times during business meetings. Lies. Archer said that Hunter Biden was selling the Biden family brand. In his view, that Joe Biden brought the most value to this brand. It's just a bunch of lies. And in the case of this Ukraine energy firm, Archer testified that he thought the firm would have gone out of business if they didn't have that Biden family association. Lies. Joe Biden was using multiple false aliases, fake email names, 
in his dealings about Ukraine during the Obama White House while his son was making money in Ukraine. The evidence is so clear you cannot look away, and the Constitution requires the House to follow the truth where it leads. We have a duty to do this. We cannot stop the process. So that uh, last voice that you heard was Speaker Mike Johnson, who has consistently said even prior to being Speaker that the House should follow the facts where they lead and not make any sort of presumptions. And that's exactly what they're doing. So accompanying that montage, the Speaker tweeted today, the House is voting to formally open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The facts don't lie. It's time for the American people to get Answers. So, of course, uh, the Democrats during the debate yesterday said that Republicans are focusing on impeachment and that's the wrong priority, which, uh, you know, their priority when they impeached uh, President Trump twice was somehow a great priority for them. And this is all just political nonsense. And it's so frustrating to see how everything is so split on party lines. That's what frustrates me because the U.S. Constitution clearly gives the House the power of impeachment. It is a quasi-judicial process in the sense that impeachment is the formalizing like it would be a complaint or an indictment. Uh, But the context, of course, is the House, not uh, law enforcement on an executive branch or, or typical police law enforcement and or a prosecutor. And the House managers then have to go to the Senate, which serves as the court forum and the members of the Senate pursuant to the U.S. Constitution in Article one are the individuals that sit as a jury and the uh, chief justice presides over that trial. So it is a quasi-judicial process in the sense that it doesn't follow the same uh, judicial process in the judicial branch, but rather it is uh, the members of the House and the Senate and so the full Congress that decide whether the impeachment then moves forward to conviction in the Senate and the possible consequences are a removal, and that would be automatic, and then a removal from office for the individual impeached. And then if that person was convicted, then the uh, Senate can also say that they are unfit uh, and an unqualified and disqualified for further federal office. Um, so, of course, this is uh, this shouldn't be just a political process, but that's what it became during the first two impeachments of Donald Trump. And um, and I was very uh, privileged to uh, be on his legal team to represent uh, him during the first impeachment. And then uh, now moving forward, the, the Democrats are just accusing the Republicans of politicizing the process when that's exactly what they did. And it's taken the House, I actually think, a lot longer than it should have. I was objecting to uh, the House majority just impeaching Biden on day one because you actually have to open an inquiry. You have to follow the process. But you actually need to move forward where the facts and the evidence show. So this isn't just politicized. And just because the Democrats did that, now they're throwing it back at Republicans saying this is politicized. They're basically admitting that they politicized the process. So Speaker Johnson has been very clear. This is one thing that I sincerely commend him on, that it has to be part of the rule of law, going back to Article 1 of the Constitution, has to be very, very clear as to uh, what the 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 inquiry is focused on, that it is not just political. But this is what Democrat Representative Ted Lieu accused the Republicans of focusing on impeachment and the wrong priorities during the debate on the congressional floor yesterday. This is cut five. What are Republicans focused on? Impeachment with no evidence. Even today, they cannot explain what action President Biden took that they thought was illegal or criminal. That's right. 
they're going forward with impeachment even though they cannot explain what crime they think President Biden committed because he didn't commit any. It's a waste of people's time and Republicans are again focused on the wrong priorities. He didn't commit a crime? Well, I think the Republicans would certainly contest that. And Representative Jim Jordan, who, of course, is the uh, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, had a very excellent response to that. Why the impeachment inquiry? This is about three minutes long, but it's absolutely fantastic. This is Representative Jim Jordan yesterday on the congressional floor. This is cut three. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I thank the gentleman for yielding. This is a story as old as the hills. You got a politician who does certain things. Those actions then benefit his family financially, and then there's an effort to conceal it and sweep it under the rug. The best example is to go back to the Ukrainian energy company Burisma. Four key facts about Hunter Biden's involvement with this company and Joe Biden's involvement. First, Hunter Biden gets put on the board of Burisma. Second, he's not qualified to be on the board of Burisma. Don't take my word for it. He said it himself. Third, he asked, he's asked by the executives of Burisma, can you weigh in with Washington, with DC to help alleviate the pressure we are under? Three days later, the vice president of the United States, now President Joe Biden goes to Ukraine and conditions American tax dollars for Ukraine on the firing of the prosecutor who was applying the pressure to the company Hunter Biden was on the board of. That, that's why we're going with an official impeachment inquiry vote today. That's why this needs to be investigated. There are two resolutions we're considering. Resolution 918 and Resolution 917 incorporated if we pass 918. Three names mentioned in those two resolutions. One name, of course, is Joe Biden, President of the United States. But the other two names in Resolution 917 are two DOJ tax lawyers, Mark Daly and Jack Morgan. Two guys we want to talk to that the Biden Justice Department says we're not going to let you talk to them. With this vote, we think we get to talk to those individuals. And here's why it's important. These guys, these two individuals, initially said there should be tax, felony tax charges for 2014, 2015 in the Hunter Biden investigation. And that's important because those are the years when the bulk of the income from Burisma came to Hunter Biden. They initially said there should be tax char or, uh, felony tax charges for those years. Then they changed their position. Eight months later, they changed their position. We want to know why. Why did you do that? Why did you let the statute of limitations intentionally let the statute of limitations lapse for those years? My theory is it's one thing to charge Hunter Biden on a gun charge in Delaware. It's another thing to say we're not going to charge another thing to charge him on Burisma tax years because that gets you to Joe Biden. That gets you to the White House. That's why we need this vote. The impeachment power, as the chairman said, is a power that solely resides in the House. When you have a majority of the House of Representatives go on record, that sends a message. We think we get timely participation from the witnesses we need to talk to and the documents Mr. Comer has been seeking. Finally, I would say this about this changing story from the White House, this changing story from the Justice Department. Today, Hunter Biden did a press conference. He was supposed to be in a deposition. He did a press conference. And at that press conference, he said, my father was not financially involved in the business. Well, that's an important qualifier. We haven't heard that. For three years, we haven't heard that. All we've heard is Joe Biden had no involvement. Now his son does a press conference when he's supposed to be being deposed and says he wasn't financially involved. Well, what involvement was it? We know there was phone calls, dinners, and meetings. What involvement was it? That's why we want to ask these questions with important witnesses. That's why this resolution is important. I urge a yes vote. With that, I yield back. That was Representative Jim Jordan with a very fiery speech and I think laid out perfectly why this impeachment inquiry is necessary. So we'll continue to uh, 
consider this and, and pray for the House of Representatives that they will continue to follow the facts where they lead and get to the truth. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. We want to welcome a new sponsor to American Family Radio, and I hope you give them your full support, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. If you're like most of us, you're feeling the strain of rising healthcare costs. Well, good news, Christian Healthcare Ministries may be the answer you're looking for. CHM is an affordable, faith-based option to traditional healthcare that provides members the freedom to choose doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance. Can you say freedom. CHM is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry and has been around for over 40 years, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. They are tried and true and have members in all 50 states and around the world and have covered billions in medical bills. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. Make the switch today by visiting chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, Iran has threatened a big explosion in the Middle East if Israel continues to kill terrorists. This is the headline from The Daily Wire reporting that the Islamic Republic of Iran threatened that a quote unquote big explosion could unfold in the Middle East if Israel continues to hunt down the Hamas terrorists responsible for murdering 1,200 Israelis on October 7th. And so the Iran, uh, Iranian foreign minister said, quote, at least every week re- we receive a message from the the United States telling us that U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq are targeted by some groups. At any moment, there is a possibility of a big explosion in the region, one not controllable by any party. So this is another escalation in the ongoing Israel and uh, Hamas conflict. And joining us now is our uh, reporter on the ground. And we're always so uh, grateful for his time, the editor in chief of All Israel News at allisrael.com, our friend Joel Rosenberg. So uh, Joel, what is uh, the reaction, if any, um, to Israel from this statement? Well, there hasn't been a reaction uh, formally yet that I've seen, Jenna, but I will say that uh, that is the, the sound of uh, a, a group of people that are losing. Um, uh, Hamas is losing, and this is, not, this, is what the, this is what all Israel News is reporting uh, based on really great sources here in Israel, but you're not hearing this in most of the mainstream media in the United States. And what the problem Iran is having at the regime level is this, they've invested a lot of money and a lot of weapons and a lot of training into Hamas, and it's getting vanquished. Um, it, it, now, it's been bloody. It's been brutal. It's been bitter. But, but day by day, Israel is vanquishing the Hamas terror uh, infrastructure, and we've killed more than 7,000 terrorists. Uh, we've captured many. Today, We uh, our, our lead story on all Israel news at the moment is that uh, Israel 
uh, took lots of pr- Hamas prisoners who were hiding in a, not hiding, they were fighting from a, inside a, a Gaza hospital. So um, we're seeing more and more people surrendering. Uh, we're seeing, we're hearing more and more bellicose statements uh, from Iran and others, but the but that's because Hamas is getting pulverized, and Iran is losing a major strategic asset in the region. So then, Joel, does this um, statement from the um, Iranian uh, foreign minister, does that confirm more than has been previously uh, been confirmed or reported Iran's involvement with this conflict? No, but I, it, we, we have plenty of evidence. It goes back uh, decades, but we have you know, you know, lots of evidence, including you know, video statements uh, in interviews by Hamas leaders. Even in recent years uh, at All Israel News, we have been reporting this type of thing because it's not a secret. Uh, Iran considers um, Hamas a major uh, terror proxy uh, force. Uh, and, and what we're watching is... Um, uh, so, so a couple key points, Jenna. Again, some of the things that we're reporting at All Israel News is, number one, uh, yeah, not only are we winning, but Israel believes that in the next month or so, middle of January, end of January, uh, Israeli officials are telling me that they believe that they will have um, effectively crushed the Hamas terror uh, leadership and infrastructure in, um, in, in, in the Gaza Strip. So that would be huge. It doesn't mean all the operations would be over, but major operations they think could be over by the middle of January or end of January. Now, number two, um, uh, we've been reporting for a while, but it just got confirmed this week by Israel's defense minister, you know, formally, publicly, that as soon as we win in Gaza, Israel will turn its attention to Hezbollah in the north, in Lebanon. Now, obviously, we're already fighting with Hezbollah because they keep attacking us every day. Uh, but it hasn't mushroomed into, you know, a much larger war yet. But um, there's a U.N. Security Council resolution passed in 2006. Think about that, how long that's been. That, uh, resolution 1701 that says Hezbollah, Iran's other major terror proxy force in the region, in Lebanon, cannot have any weapons or presence south of a river called the Latani River, which is about 30 kilometers, maybe about 12, 15 miles from Israel's northern border. Okay, so that's what the U.N. said uh, in our last big war with Hezbollah, you know, in 2006. But of course, Hezbollah totally ignored that. And of course, the U.N. did nothing to enforce it. So Israel is saying publicly now what we've been reporting um, with, with you know, behind the scenes sources, which is that Israel's going to put all its military might then on that northern border and fight in southern Lebanon to push Hezbollah back up against uh, above that northern um, river called the Tani River. Why? So that there's a buffer zone. That's what the U.N. resolution calls for, a buffer zone, so that the Israelis who live along the northern tier aren't at risk, a grave risk, of an invasion by Hezbollah in the future the way Hamas invaded southern Israel from Gaza before. That means we have many months of fighting ahead, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of sadness here because we're losing soldiers, but there's also a sense of real unity and resolve.
And we're continuing to praying uh, for Israel. I'm speaking with Jill Rosenberg, who's the editor-in-chief of All Israel News. And uh, this warning from the uh, Iranian foreign minister follows the United States veto of a United Nations Security Council resolution that sought an immediate ceasefire. This coming from Fox News that uh, the U.S. Deputy Permanent Representative Robert Wood called uh, the demand for an unconditional ceasefire, quote-unquote, dangerous and a recipe for disaster for Israel for Palestinians and for the entire region. The militant groups have launched a total of 90 attacks against U.S. bases and troops in the Middle East since October 17th and several attacks against commercial vessels in the Red Sea, including the hijacking of a cargo ship this month. And um, interestingly, I also saw a piece from uh, Huffington Post yesterday, and and I know I, I actually read all of the news, um, including some of the most ridiculous outlets. <laughs> Doing but your oppo research, huh? Exactly, <laughs> yes. And um, and they, of course, highlighted that um, some uh, 21 congressional staffers have said that they've received something like 600,000 calls to Congress demanding a ceasefire. So uh, what does that tell you in terms of the United States position following this kind of warning from Iran? Well, look, uh, let me let me break that into a few pieces. First, um, you know, as you know, I'm not a big fan of President Biden, but I will. He does deserve credit for vetoing this pernicious uh, resolution. The idea that the world can impose um, a ceasefire on Israel is just wrong. We've been attacked. We're fighting back. What the, what the U.N. should be saying is they should be passing a resolution calling for Hamas to surrender. What are you talking about a ceasefire? Why? Why do you let the if you're if you've got um, ter- uh, terrorist criminals, whatever, in an elementary school and they're killing everybody, and the police go in and start shooting with the terrorists, does the mayor call for a ceasefire? No, he he, he says, you know, he tells to, to the terrorists inside the, the elementary school, put down your weapons and surrender immediately, or we're going to kill you. But that's the way civilized life works, and the U.N. is just completely out of control. Uh, we should be calling for Hamas surrender. Then they're not going to, so we're going to f- defeat them. But uh, so, so Biden gets credit for vetoing, because that was a 15-vote um, in favor of that ceasefire resolution. Britain abstained. I, I don't understand why, because they are saying they don't want a ceasefire. Um, and then uh, and the uh, United States vetoed. So. Uh, so God bless the president for that. However, however, you just noted that there have been there have been 90 attacks by Iranian proxies or Iranian terror forces against U.S. military personnel in the Middle East, and Biden is doing almost nothing to punch Iran in the face and say stop. Um, nor is he, uh, and he's also releasing all kinds of uh, billions of dollars of funds to the Iranian regime. It doesn't make sense. And that's why I've said, I think I've said it on your show, Biden has this sort of schizophrenic nature about him in the Middle East. He is a friend of Israel, but he keeps appeasing Iran. And you, those, two, those two things do not go together. He needs to get tough on Iran, and I'm grateful that he's standing with Israel. 
Yeah, I, I'm grateful and well said that um, as much as we can disagree with uh, President Biden on a lot of different levels and, and overall, and um, I just talked about in, in the last segment that uh, I commend the House for formalizing the impeachment inquiry following the facts where they lead. And I think that was uh, definitely justified under the U.S. Constitution to pursue that impeachment. Uh, we still can give credit mm-hmm. when um, even those we generally disagree with do the right thing. And so here standing with Israel, that's a good thing. Um, however, uh, you've, you've also mentioned, you just mentioned, and we've talked about this um, a number of times, Joel Rosenberg, that um, you know, he seems to be a little wishy-washy on some things. And, you know, do you think that the upcoming, <laughs> uh, tw- I mean, yeah, to put it mildly, uh, the upcoming 2024 election has anything to do with that? Or is that more just because of the overall uh, Democrat base and their perspectives on Palestine and Israel? Well, I guess my prayer for President Biden is that the his poll numbers that are so bad on foreign policy in general, uh, not to mention domestic policy, but also on the Middle East in particular and on the war uh, between Israel and Hamas uh, in, in very particular moments, his, his numbers are terrible on this. And I hope that my prayer is that he, his, his spine is stiffened and he's stronger um, standing with Israel going forward. Um, he doesn't have any serious opposition. I mean, I was thinking maybe Michelle Obama might jump into this thing or or some other major person because his numbers are so bad. But they're sticking with the corpse. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm uh, sorry, uh, they're sticking with uh, <laughs> the potted plants with, plant. with yeah. their uh, old, you know, the feeble. And the problem is even all Americans, even even trying to respect the president, this is this is not cool what the Democrats are doing. I mean, and he they shouldn't let him run again. Of course, he wants to run. He, he doesn't understand what he's doing. And he looks weak physically. He looks weak mentally. And he is weak geopolitically and increasingly politically. So that is not, that's what's drawing all these bad guys to invade Ukraine, to uh, invade Israel, to attack Israel from the north, have Iran getting very, very, very close to uh, uh, finally enriching all the uranium they need to start building nuclear weapons. China's being tempted, right, to go after Taiwan. That we know they want to, but it's because they smell blood in the water. It's because they see Biden is so weak. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, I did a program on my um, TBN primetime show called The Rosenberg Report. Uh, and I, I started the year interviewing Mike Pompeo, and I but Secretary, uh, my sense of it is that we're heading into the two most dangerous years in American modern history, because if you're. And I think we may yes. have. Oh, you're back. OK. Um, it, yeah, no, so well, repeat that just well, a little bit. Sorry, you cut out. Oh, OK. I was just, uh, just at the very Pompeo end about the secretary. Room. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I was basically just telling uh, Pompeo. It feels like we're heading to the two most dangerous years in American modern history, because if you're an enemy of the United States and you want to do something horrific, this is probably the moment, right? Whether it's President Trump or uh, uh, Governor DeSantis, whoever becomes a Republican, pre- the, the nominee, and then eventually uh, if they win the presidency, which seems likely whoever the Republican nominee is has a pretty good shot at this, they're not going to be treated with the weakness that – Biden is showing. So if you're a bad guy, this is sort of your window. And sure enough, we've seen this all over the world, and it could get worse from here. So um, 
Yeah. So the Iranians, look, they're 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 terrible because no, they never pay a price. They never, you know, they're they've attacked the United States ninety times in the last two and a half months. And what has Biden done? Almost mm-hmm. nothing. That that if you if you let somebody hit you ninety times and you don't punch back, especially when you're a giant, <laughs> and it was a, you're going to get hit more. You're, you're, you're emboldening the bad guys. And so Biden has got to punch back. I don't think it would start a whole war. I think if Iran suddenly got a, a, a massive round of missiles on its nuclear sites and its defense ministry, it would wake up and go, oh, I guess we really have been thrashed and we should quiet down. Yeah, well, I I can certainly uh, say that wouldn't have been the response to just uh, stand back and get punched 90 times if uh, President Trump was still in office. And and I I don't think that that would be any uh, Republican uh, president's response. And so in just the last two minutes we have with you, uh, Jill Rosenberg, um, and I so appreciate all of your time. How can the AFR family and Christian conservatives um, around the nation pray best uh, for you and for Israel? Well, thank you. I would say uh, several things. First, uh, I would encourage people to be praying uh, that Israel's leadership has real wisdom. You know, the fog of war and international criticism and U.N. Security Council attacks, and it's hard. It's hard to stay focused. So uh, Israel's leadership needs wisdom to know how to win in the South against Hamas and then turn our attention towards Hezbollah. And then we need wisdom to know how to neutralize Iran. That's one. Two, we need to, we actually need um, uh, financial support uh, through ministries like the Joshua Fund, what my wife and I started 16, 17 years ago, uh, which has uh, invested more than $100 million into humanitarian relief and strengthening the church in local areas here in Israel and our neighboring Arab countries. Why? Because the Joshua Fund is, is a ministry that's helping Israelis right now and Palestinians who are suffering. And that is, you know, Humanitarian relief at a time like this is critical. It's just—it's amazing how many Israelis um, are um, have been affected by this war, and they're—they they're, have been forced to flee from their homes and live someplace else. And they need help. They need encouragement. They know to know need to know Christians are with them. Thank you. Amen. Well, thank you, uh, Jill Rosenberg, editor in chief of All Israel News. Always appreciated, and we will be praying for you. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Finally, some good news. Because of you, Preborn has rescued over 44,000 babies this year alone. Right now, thousands of mothers are awaiting birth of their precious babies, and thousands upon thousands of babies are taking their first breath. Since its beginnings, Preborn's Networks of Clinics has rescued over 270,000 babies. That is a miracle. The overturning of Roe versus Wade only made the left more ravenous for the blood of the innocent. So now we need to be more passionate to save babies. Thanks to Preborn, we can do just that. For $28, you can empower a mother to choose life. Once she sees the precious life growing inside of her and hears her baby's heartbeat, she is twice as likely to choose life. And right now, through your match, your gift is doubled. Please give your most generous gift that will go 100% toward life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. 
That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Well, the Supreme Court said on Wednesday it would decide a challenge to the federal regulations issued since 2016 that relaxed restrictions on an abortion pill, ensuring the court's power over reproductive rights, quote unquote. That's coming from The Wall Street Journal. Uh, This, you know, we would uh, call it just abortion is murder, intentional murder of a child will remain in the forefront during a presidential election year. A lower court invalidated those regulations issued by the FDA, but they have remained in force while the justices weighed whether to hear the Biden administration's appeal. So joining me now to discuss this and more on all of the pro-life issues and how this will be in the forefront heading into the presidential election year is our good friend Abby Johnson, who is a former Planned Parenthood director, now the pro-life, ardent pro-life CEO of And Then There Were None Ministry. So Abby, uh, thanks so much. And uh, this is a very interesting time for the Supreme Court to hear this case and and um, they, they heard something similar recently. or And so uh, where does this put uh, the whole abortion topic? Yeah, so thanks for having me, Jenna. Um, yeah, so, I mean, basically there's a, there's a big fight right now regarding medication abortion. And um, when I worked at Planned Parenthood in, let's see, uh, in 2000, Eight or 2009, at the last, well, it was one of the last Planned Parenthood conferences I went to, they had said that by 2020, they wanted more than half of abortions committed to be done through pill. So the abortion pill, medication abortion, chemical abortion, whatever you want to call it. They did, they did meet that goal. So we see over 50% of abortions committed done via pill. Now, a lot of these are done through the mail. So there's over 70 websites currently where you can just go online. You can put in literally any date of birth. You could put in any name, any, you know, any date you want, any last menstrual period, anything. They don't verify, they don't check your age, they don't request an ultrasound, nothing like that. And you can get these pills mailed to your home. Now, that's potentially dangerous um, because, you know, if you go online and you're trying to get medication for anything else, you have to have a doctor consult, you have to submit your ID, you have to go through these checks and balances, and you're not having to do that for medication abortion. And this is a pill that has very serious side effects, including death. This is a pill that has killed many women, and it kills a child every time a woman takes it. So, um, so there's a lot of things that that states have considered, and now they're taking it to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court is going to have to consider different laws, different parameters, um, and whether this is even a, a drug that should be administered to women at all. Mm. And this is so horrific that we live in a country that you can get uh, abortion by mail, basically. And for women who uh, d- choose to 
try to go online and just get these types of pills, that there isn't uh, any sort of, uh, of regulation over this. And so what is the key issue that the Supreme Court is going to hear? Because if it's if it's this, uh, this is the, uh, a my understanding is one of the most commonly used abortion pills. And so if they uh, regulate this more, uh, w- wouldn't it just be that the FDA would approve some other type of drug? Um, or, or what is really the main fight here? Yeah, so um, so one of the main things that they're looking at here is okay. So there's a there's a currently a two step protocol that's being used, and that is a mifepristone misoprostol combination. And uh, the mifepristone is the first pill that someone will take, and that is a pill that actually kills the baby. The second set of pills, misoprostol, that uh, those are the pills that a woman takes to actually expel the dead baby from her womb. So this is the most common in the United States, the most common type of abortion pill regimen that's out there. And that's kind of known as the, the gold star in the United States, uh, abortion pill method. And so the Supreme Court is is looking at basically the efficacy of the mifepristone, that the first drug. And, you know, did it go through appropriate trials? We do know that it was sort of fast-tracked through the FDA. There weren't really proper trials done in regards to abortion. It was initially used off-label uh, for abortion. It's originally a, actually a stomach medication for gastrointestinal issues. So, uh, but then they discovered, oh, it, it will also kill a baby, so let's use it for abortion. So they're kind of looking at that. Um, but here's the deal, Jenna, and this is what is actually concerning, um, is if the Supreme Court, you know, weighs in on this and says, you know what, this mifepristone actually shouldn't be used um my concern is that, you know, the pro-life movement is going to say, oh, wow, this is huge. This is a huge victory. Uh, Mifepristone can't be used. But that's actually really not a victory because the most common medication abortion protocol worldwide is actually the misoprostol only medication abortion protocol. And that is when a woman just takes these misoprostol pills and she takes them multiple times until she expels a baby. And this baby is potentially not a lot. It's not dead when she expels it. So she's potentially expelling a live baby. And if the baby is born alive, of course, uh, it will not be large enough to sustain life on its own. Um, And there will not be medical care available, even if it was. Um, and so this baby will be left to suffocate uh, on its uh, on its lungs. Its lungs will suffocate, and um, and it's a it's a terrible death. And these women will be watching this happen. Um, it's a more dangerous protocol for women. And look, I'm not advocating for safe abortion uh, at all, but I also don't want women to die. And so I think it's a it's a delicate balance there. So, you know, that's that's kind of where we are with this. It's not that they're looking at getting rid of medication abortion at all. It's that they're looking at one particular combination 
But even if they say this combination is not okay, there are still options to kill your baby via pill. And I I think that's where the pro-life movement has to be careful. the, The abortion industry, they're not going to stop killing babies. Mm-hmm. They're not yeah. going to say, uh, "Well, okay, you know, uh, guess we shouldn't be guess we shouldn't be doing abortions anymore." They are always going to try to find a way to kill our children, and so yeah. there's there's never going to be a time that the abortion industry, this industry that feeds off of child sacrifice. Okay, we're talking about the spirit of of Baal. We're talking about the spirit of Moloch. They're never going to say, well, let's just roll it up and and we're done with that. They will find ways to kill our innocent children. They will find ways to sacrifice them. And so we have to continue to fight. No matter what the Supreme Court says, no matter what lower courts say, we have to continue to fight. And, And really, we need to look at ways to be on the offensive instead of continuing to be on the defensive. And that's so well said, Abby Johnson, because um, it does seem like the the pro-life movement would, um, if the Supreme Court determines to take this particular pill off the market, say, um, you know, this is a a great win for pro-life and not realizing um, some of the implications and and exactly what you just said, that the abortion industry isn't going to stop there. And and this is why it's so important in the wake of the overturning of Roe versus Wade that the states continue to protect life through legislation. And we've seen that happen um, in some very red states. And I want to get your thoughts on Texas, because there was a huge national story, of course, uh, with a a woman who uh, alleged that her pregnancy, uh, you know, the child has a terminal illness and having another C-section would uh, risk her life. And ultimately, the Texas Supreme Court said that she couldn't have an abortion. And so she just went to another state for abortion tourism. Mm -hmm. And so is that... Is that what would happen if um, this type of abortion pill was was restricted, um, you know, that that th- women will just find other ways around this? I mean, it, it's it's frustrating watching this, that states are trying to, some states are trying to do the best that they can, but then you also see how the mainstream media is twisting the stories and lying about it. Um, and, and real quick, I also want to get your perspective on um, Lila Rose saying another aspect of this story that reveals how dishonest the media is and the coverage of this woman's um, pro-abortion attorney lawsuit is that according to her lawsuit, she had two C-sections. She doesn't want to deliver her daughter alive because she may need to do another C-section for um, a future pregnancy and that would risk her fertility. And so the bottom line, according to her lawsuit, is that she's planning to get pregnant again and undergo a C-section. So why, why risk that in the future when she's not willing to do that for this baby? I mean, it doesn't make sense. And so abortion tourism is just, is so... Uh, frustrating for states that are trying to protect life. Yeah, it is. Um, but, you know, let me also say that's, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, I, I guess I would say to that, it's kind of what, um, that's kind of where we are, right? It's, it's kind of like, that's why people are flocking to, that's why Californians are flocking to Texas and flocking to Florida, right? Um 
if you don't like what's going on in your state, then go to go to a state where where it more aligns with your values, right? Um, and if you don't want to be in a state that is supporting abortion tourism, then don't live there. Um, you don't want your tax dollars spent on you know lodging and the actual abortion procedure for women seeking abortion, then don't live in California. Um, you know, don't live in states that are that are providing that. And that's I, I feel like that's kind of where our country is going. Um, women are always going to find workarounds to have abortions. Uh, and that can be said for any immoral act, right? Uh, people are always going to find uh, workarounds to drink and drive. People are always going to find workarounds to do all kinds of sinful behavior. That's sin. That's just the way it is. That's that's the way it is for immoral acts. But you don't go and then legalize drinking and driving because some people are doing it. And and that's how I feel about abortion. Yeah, women are always going to find a, a way to go and and have have abortions. But that doesn't mean that you go. Well, people are doing it anyway. Let's legalize it. Um, right. That's not the way morality works. So, yeah. uh, you know, I feel like that, that's kind of where we are in this country now. Yeah, really well said, and absolutely. And we should uh, have our law reflect the measurable difference between right and wrong and good and evil. And so in just the last two minutes I have with you, Abby Johnson, um, where should the pro-life argument go from here? Because I, I think, uh, and you and I talk about this a lot, that uh, pro-lifers need to have a better message, especially uh, with so much hostility from the mainstream media, uh, calling you know pro-lifers just pro-birth and all of these other ridiculous things. Um, but how can we move the conversation forward so that we can get the best laws possible in as many states as possible? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's currently a, um, sort of this Fourteenth Amendment move uh, that. You know, some people are working on. I personally, uh, for me, I'm really about working with with women in need, and I feel like if if we really focused on that, and even if we focused on legislation that really pushed that. So, you know, in Texas, we have Texas Pregnancy Care Network funds. Um, and we're funding that millions and millions of dollars a year that, you know, is going directly to help women in need. And I would love to see an expansion on that. You know, let's help with rent, rental needs, um, housing needs, uh, you know, transportation needs. And, and so we're working with the governor's office on that. I think we need programs like that in every state. We need additional support programs in every state. And honestly, we need the church to step up. Um, and so I don't know if there's ways to incentivize churches to do that, um, to get them on board with this, but we, we really need churches to step up now. We, you know, we don't, these women don't need more and more and more government in their lives. They need more and more and more Jesus. And, and so we really need the church to step up and be the church. And, um, it's interesting, you know, I, I grew up in the Baptist church and I remember every Easter there was always this. Lottie Moon offering to go and, you know, help missionaries and everything. And I, I believe in that. I believe in missions. But look, we've got a mission field right here 
in our own communities, in our backyard. And so what are we doing to help our local pregnancy centers? What are we doing to help these women that are in need? That's where our focus needs to be right now. Amen. So well said. Abby Johnson, always appreciate your commentary and your strong stance for life and for the truth of the gospel of Christ. Follow Abby Johnson at Abby Johnson on X, uh, the founder and CEO of And Then There Were None Ministry. We'll be back tomorrow with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.